Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, while more than 60% of American high schoolers go on to college, only 17% of American Indian students do. Those who do enroll often have a tough time coping with a lack of connectedness and social isolation. That's why 25 years ago, a group of young Native women decided to claim their space in one of the most traditional social organizations in higher education, Greek life. Alpha Pi Omega is the first sorority for Native American women. Later in the show, few thought it would ever happen, but in 1969, the prestigious all-male Yale University went co-ed. In her new book, Yale Needs Women, author Ann Gardner-Perkins tells the stories of the first women on the Yale campus who faced extraordinary pressure to succeed. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me from WUNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Christina Theodoro, tribal liaison with Maximus and one of the founders of Alpha Pi Omega. Hello, Christina. Hi, how are you? I'm glad to have you. And joining me from Stillwater, Oklahoma, Elizabeth Alexander, student at Oklahoma State University and the president of the OSU chapter of Alpha Pi Omega. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hello. Well, I'm so happy to have both of you. I have to say, I did not know there was a Native American women's sorority until I read an article uh, from uh, Arizona State University, and they were talking about the the sorority there and the chapter, and I thought, what? What's going on? What? I, I'd never heard about it. Uh, so talk about being definitely under the radar. Christina, I want to start with you as a founder. Um, what uh, motivated you to begin the sorority? Starting um, undergrad was a dawning experience. Um, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, so I grew up in a big city. And when I got to uh, a major university here in North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, um, it was an arduous journey to start as a freshman. Um, I experienced it, though, along with other American Indian women who were from rural communities, from tribal communities, from reservations, and um, having a background in Indian education uh, meant that I was highly aware and sensitive of our needs on campus. And so um, we decided that we were going to um, make sure Native women were successful, and we looked to the, the, the best way to do that. Um, and... Within universities, it's well known um, in higher education that fraternities and sororities have some of the highest retention rates and graduation rates and GPAs. 
And so we, we also knew socially um, we wanted some equity and parity on campuses. So we, Alpha Pi Omega was born. All right. That was 1994 on the University of North Carolina in uh, Chapel, Chapel Hill. Um, you're a member of a tribe from southeast North Carolina, uh, so this is very comfortable territory for you. But when you got to campus, as you were talking about feelings sort of uh, untethered a, a bit, um, now how many students, other Native students, were on the campus at that time? Oh, there were probably around 28 students that Mm -hmm. were affiliated with the Carolina Indian Circle. And what I uh, read from you is that you noticed um, right away that the dropout rate for the Native students um, was really quite high, 90%, you said. So this had you looking at social support systems. Within um, the group... Um, of, of Indian students on campus, we actually had a 98% dropout rate of American Indian women who were first year and sophomore women. So when we went on winter break, we went home for Christmas and came back, there were about seven women, seven young Indian women who had left campus and didn't come, home, didn't come back to finish their freshman and sophomore year. And that concerned me. Mm-hmm. Why don't you explain for people who are, who are like, well, you know, it's hard for everybody when they go to college. Why why should it be any harder for uh, Native women on campus, and particularly at that time? So put us back in that time and, and why it was particularly difficult. When you come from a tribal nation, you live in a microcosm. You live in a way of life that is completely and and uniquely set apart from any other nation um, in mainstream society. A lot of times um, when you arrive at a college campus, you're the cream of the crop from your, your tribal community. Tribal leadership have placed this enorm- enormous um, weight to carry. Um, when you go to college, you're told that you are to achieve great things, not just to get a job for you personally, but to advance the needs of your tribal community. Um, tribes suffer from disparities, social disparities, health disparities. We all understand that. And so when you are one of the smart ones, one of the creative ones, one of the innovative ones, and you leave to go to university, um, you're given a mission. Um, you're you're like a an ambassador for your community, for your tribe. Um, and then you have all of the personal needs as a student. You have, you know, your wants and your needs and 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 you try to figure out, you know, you're also trying to figure out at that young age, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so arriving on campus, you have a duty to tribe, a duty to family, a duty to yourself, and then you have, um, to go to class. And so um, American Indian um, student achievement happens at a low rate. So there are, at the time, there were not a lot of support systems in place to support Indian students going to universities, major universities. And so when we arrived on campus, it seemed like everything was set against us. There wasn't our familiar food. There's not our familiar language. We don't have um, the familiar community members. Um, life is different. Life isn't native. And you have people who look at you, wonder who you are, wonder why you speak the way you do. When you say you're American Indian and you're not wearing feathers and you don't live in a teepee, they're wondering why 
um, you even exist. And so you begin to represent all things Indian Mm -hmm. on campuses. And you begin to have to create this voice, this militant sense of existence um, that is set apart from you even being a student. And so that's a lot to juggle. And um, it's hard. Mm. And so we we had to, we ourselves as students had to sit down and figure out what that meant. So uh, in my community, I'm African American. Um, that's called uh, being a credit to your race. All that pressure. So I, I yes. definitely resonate with that. That's my guest, Christina Theodoro. Um, she is one of the founders of Alpha Pi Omega. It is the Native American Women's Sorority. All right, Elizabeth Alexander, you're a student at Oklahoma University. You actually learned about the sorority from your older sister. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, so growing up, there's a kind of a big age gap between me and my sister. So when I was in um, finishing up elementary school, she was in college, and I would spend the night with her, and we would go to events with the sorority. And so that was kind of my first exposure to the sorority. Um, and it was, it was amazing, um, because it was very inclusive. They had sisters from all over, not just Oklahoma. Um, And then when I finally figured out what sorority it actually was, um, when I went to OSU, um, I I wanted to keep that going. I wanted to be a part of it also, um, because it was a strong support system that, you know, you really need when you're not at home. And these women, um, they they hold the same values, which is, Um, really important when you want to find your place at um, an institution where it seems like there's no place for you Mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of um, Native American involvement, you know, other than the few clubs that we have, which are amazing. Um, But the first two years that I was here, I didn't, I don't remember ever seeing a Native American and I was other than you mean other than you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. (laughs) So, so, so there's, yeah, w- there's 800 members uh, all told across the country. You're in, in the chapter, as I said, at Oklahoma State University. Um, why don't you describe what it's like? Um, you've given us a little bit of a hint of you saying there, there are sisters from all over. And when you say sisters, you're, you're referring to other Native women from various tribes who've come together in, this, uh, in the sorority on campus there where you are. Where, and by the way, you're president of that chapter. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about what that support means uh, every day as you're going about your business, um, you know, being a, trying to be a student. Yeah. Um, so in moving away from home um, is hard. And, you know, we need the support system, not just um, Native Americans, but, you know, everyone does. And the sorority was really that for me because um, because of the age gap between me and my sister's. Um, I kind of, they moved out before I got the chance to actually form a good relationship with them. So I really, I kind of felt like an only child. Um, but when I joined the sorority, it was like I had sisters Mm. and these sisters, they pushed me to do good. Um, not only in school, but to better myself as a person. Um, and so that um, has really helped me through my journey um, and was part of the reason why 
Um, you know, I'm happy to be president. I'm happy to um, be that support system for other women so that um, we can we can get our sisters graduated and the um, support system doesn't just stop at OSU. Um, we have sisters who travel to other states and anywhere that they go, pretty much they can find a sister who is in Alpha Pi Omega um, and meet up with them and have uh, dinner or get a bite to eat or something like that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Christina Theodoro and Elizabeth Alexander. You just heard her. We're talking about Alpha Pi Omega, the nation's first sorority for Native American women. Uh, back to you, Christina. Um, you saw the evidence after building the sorority, founding the support sorority, of then that social support holding up uh, students so they did graduate. You saw the graduation rates uh, change. The the ability to interact on campus more comfortably uh, was definitely impacted. And how have you seen now across the country as the chapters have grown, young women like Elizabeth Alexander step into leadership roles? What have you seen uh, about that social support still being significant today, 25 years later? So what's unique about our situation is that as we have grown personally as founders, um, not only just myself, um, Dr. Amy Locklear-Tell, Shannon Brayboy, and Jamie Goins, um, all four of us have grown personally and professionally. We've, you know, we've aged. We have families. We have children. You know, we have professional careers. So what's been interesting is that um, – We've actually been able to see women um, grow um, over these past 25 years, and we've seen the needs of um, our women change just like like our needs have changed, right? So there's been this evolutionary process. So what we've had to kind of understand, you know, where do we support Indian women now? Like we have had Indian women who have have, you know, professional career paths um, that are um, educators, they're, they're attorneys, um, they're researchers at universities, they're um, medical professionals in various careers, they're social workers. And so what we've seen is that we've had to kind of, um, you know, grow the organization, realize, you know, what are our new tasks? How do we continue to support the sisterhood? And it's beyond the undergraduate chapter. Um, we have nine um, chartered professional chapters, and we have various provisional chapters across the United States um, where we we have professional women that are joining Alpha Pi Omega, even, you know, in their adult years that never had an opportunity as undergraduates. And so what we see is that, you know, we have women all across the United States who are showing up at women's marches. They were at Standing Rock um, as water protectors. Um, they're in their communities um, serving in um, political positions, elected positions. And they have um, a desire to support their tribal communities. They have a desire to say, you know, how do we um, broaden the depth of, you know, help and assistance for community members, not just, you know, women who are in undergraduate chapters. And so what we've had to understand is the ebb and flow and how do we grow and, you know, there's a contraction and then there's um, an expansion 
Um, so it's it's been a journey, right? It's it's been a journey. Um, I want to pick up on a couple things you said because uh, I am a member of a sorority, Delta Sigma Theta sorority, and so I uh, definitely can connect with the professional chapter aspect because that's how I joined. I was never a member in college, um, and it's lifetime, as you've just described, uh, in terms of support, and we focus a lot on uh, community service, and I know that is also the function of of uh, your organization as well. But I think it's always important in these conversations for those of us who are uh, both uh, in sororities and in other organizations to answer the question that many may ask, why a sorority? Since I I can hear somebody saying, uh, Christina and Elizabeth, I want both of you to answer it. You know, you could be in another organization and be equally supportive of each other, couldn't you? Why why, uh, that traditional social organization? So Elizabeth, I'll let you answer and I'll come back to Christina. Great. So when I first uh, got to OSU, I didn't want to join a sorority. I was so adamant uh, about not joining it because um, I was really only familiar with the stereotypes. And I didn't know that there was a Native American sorority. Um, I didn't realize that when my sister was in the sorority. Um, And when I realized that and I met the women who were in the undergrad chapter, um, it really changed my mindset because, you know, we're, excuse me, we're pretty small and we're pretty laid back. I mean, it's not as um, fast paced as other sororities. Um, And, you know, we hold on to our traditional values. And I thought that that was really amazing to see in a sorority because I, I'd only ever seen sororities portrayed as, you know, party houses and just, um, you know, not really focused on academics. Um, but Pranksters uh, saw, and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, APIO really changed my mindset and I was glad to join. I was really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Christina, so why why did you all uh, decide uh, when you were founding the organization to found a sorority? Because, as I said, you could have founded any other kind of organization and made it one that would have been supportive of these young women. So first thing we did was we surveyed the women on campus. When you come from a tribal community, when you're indigenous, um, when you are a native person, you you operate with consensus. And so you you get a feel and a sense of... Um, the community and where the community is, Um, you know, so we actually, I went to the women who became the other, you know, founders, women that I had, you know, um, Amy, Dr. Amy Lackler-Hertel, Amy, um, I'd known since junior high school. We actually sat down and had a conversation. There were women at, um, on campus that were interested in joining a sorority. Um, And the only reason why they did not join sororities was because there were none that catered to the American Indian life ways, um, the Native worldview. So when we say Alpha Pi Omega is an American Indian sorority, um, we are we honor and acknowledge the tribes of of the Americas. We we honor um, tribal cultures, tribal languages. We represent over 130 tribes in the United States. Um, we represent indigeneity. So in indigeneity, um, Native lifeways are incorporated in every aspect of who we are. We had to um, be Native. We had to look Native, feel Native. We had to 
be something that was familiar for the women who needed that something that 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 space that we were feeling that gap that we were feeling and so um the alpha pi omega experience is meant to be like an american indian um women's society so in 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 native communities across the united states and kinship systems women and men societies two spirit societies um existed and exist today um there are various um ways that we cope as native people and we do that within organized um activities and so we just simply created alpha pi omega to be what we knew and what our communities knew um and that's why we're still active and vibrant today and so mm-hmm. you will see American Indian women. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But when you go on social media, for example, when you see new initiates, women who have just joined Alpha Pi Omega, you see them in their traditional regalia. You see them in their moccasins. You see they're in their terror dresses. Um, you see the Navajo sisters with their beautiful jewelry. Um, you see indigeneity. And so when... Um, you talk about an Alpha Pi Omega woman, you actually, there's this mindset and there's this image that, that comes to mind if you are a member. And we actually have, um, you know, tribal members. We have, you know, we, we're known in Indian America and we're known on campuses for walking that way of life. And so, um, it's just been an honor to to be a part of the process. And it appears, at least for me, that your visibility uh, is increasing. Elizabeth, um, I, I noted that uh, you said you were a part, your group was a part of helping pull together the Multicultural Break Center on campus, which, of course, would make more people know who you are and, and, and um, you know, why you were founded. Yeah, um, so um, it was a few years ago. Um, it was... Um, Alpha Pi Omega and a multicultural um, fraternity that came together and worked to found the Multicultural Great Council. And so this council holds all of the multicultural um, fraternities and sororities on campus. There's currently six chapters, I believe, from different organizations. Um, and I kind of um, like to think of ourselves as... Um, just the moms on campus of the Multicultural Greek Council. Um, <laughs> they are very inclusive of us, no matter um, who we have in, who's just left. Um, they make sure that we are invited to their events and um, they are willing to help us if we need it. Um, so I really think that's uh, that's amazing because, you know, not only being a Native American sorority, but we also help to find... Um, a council for other multicultural chapters so that they could have a place too. So in conclusion, in the last few seconds I have with the both of you, is the future of Alpha Pi Omega bright, Christina? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'll be um, 49 in January. And, um, you know, we we what we say in tribal communities is that you know what we do today affects generations um seven generations from now 
And I believe that we've had the effect and the impact that we've wanted to have, and even more so because as we've brought in sisters into the sisterhood, they've just continued to um, to unfurl the beauty of um, tribal identity and indigeneity. Um, we're still going to continue to support Indian women where they are, um, still going to grow the capacity of our communities with um, our sisterhood. And so I, I'm not worried, and I'm not concerned if anything I just know that we um, will continue to have um, big shoes to fill from our ancestors all right well I thank both of you for joining me thank you I'm so honored to be on here (laughs) (laughs) well I'm honored to have you Christina Theodoro is a tribal liaison with Maximus and one of the founders of Alpha Pi Omega. Elizabeth Alexander is a student at Oklahoma State University and the president of the OSU chapter of Alpha Pi Omega. Coming up, 200 years. That's how long Yale University was an all-male institution, known the world over as the place where leaders were shaped, male leaders. That all changed in September 1969 when 575 women enrolled, the first women students. Their experiences of challenge and triumph are chronicled in a new book, Yale Needs Women. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. There was a lot going on in 1969. Young people full of revolutionary fire and passion led the civil rights and anti-war movements. That same year, one of the nation's most elite universities became the site of another kind of revolution. Yale University, whose centuries-old traditions were designed for male students, opened its doors to women students. What happened after they arrived is the compelling history depicted in the new book, Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Author Anne Gardner-Perkins joins me now from the WGBH studios in Boston. Hello, Anne. Hi, Callie. I'm so glad to have you. In the studio with Anne, three of the first women students at Yale, Connie Roster enrolled at Yale as a sophomore transfer student from Wheaton College. Hello, Connie. Hello, Callie. Also with Connie, Dahlia Rudofsky. She enrolled as a freshman, a graduate of Newton South High School in Greater Boston. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Callie. And also Shirley Daniels, enrolled as a transfer student from Boston Simmons College. Welcome, Shirley. Hi, Kelly. I'm going to start with you, Anne, because uh, what prompted you to write this book? And we should say you're a graduate of Yale, but eight years after this uh, first class of women. Uh, That's right. And I I will say I didn't know anything about the women who had come before me when I was a student at Yale, and no one really talked about them. And so it wasn't until much later when I went back to school to get my doctorate and had to 
uh, write a paper for a class on history of higher education that I started to try to find out about these women. And I was just shocked to find that none of the histories written about this important period at Yale had been written ever speaking to the women themselves. And I just felt like someone needed to do that. You couldn't write a history of coeducation that was based solely on what the men thought about what had happened. <laughs> well, one would hope not. <laughs> um, I was—I have to say—that was one of one of the many surprises I got from your book that the, this had not been done, that these stories had not been captured. Were you also prompted by the the fiftieth reunion, which occurred not long ago? Um, yeah, I mean, my hope was to be able to tell this story in conjunction with that because I felt like this is a story people need to know about these incredible women pioneers. And we so often lose track or don't even know about these stories of the women who had come first. And it seemed like the 50th anniversary would be a, a point in time when people might want to be more open to hearing these stories. Well, people are going to read this and be open-mouthed, I just have to say, because <laughs> you, you just can't believe some of the stuff that are on the pages that, that actually happened, and it wasn't that long ago. So let's begin here, because I want you to put a context uh, in our discussion. So for 200 years, Yale, only men, they said out loud, our, we are dedicated to shaping 1,000 male leaders. Uh, explain a little bit what that meant and what Kingman Brewster, who was the president at that time, was trying to accomplish. So Yale saw its mission as producing national leaders, U.S. presidents, U.S. senators, U.S. Supreme Court justices, and it had actually been pretty good at that job. But Yale was run by a group of men who had gone to college at all-male Yale, and most of them had gone to prep school at all-male boarding schools, and they could not conceive of the idea that women could be leaders as well. And so that's why Yale was reluctant to admit women in the first place, because it didn't think they could become leaders. And then once they got there, why it put in place a quota that limited the number of women so they wouldn't be taking spots that would go to male leaders. And we should say that the decision to take women in or go co-ed was not altruistic. I know, and that surprised me as well. I had assumed that it would have something to do with the women's movement, but the women's movement really hadn't gotten started at that point. And the problem instead, from Yale's perspective, was that it was seeing candidates, some of the top male candidates, choose Harvard over Yale in a growing number. So there was a lot of alarm in the Yale admissions office. And the reason those guys told Yale they wanted to go to Harvard instead of Yale was that they could date the Radcliffe girls sitting next to them in class, whereas the Yale men had to travel to Vassar or Smith to get a girl from what was seen as a suitable college for a, for a Yale girlfriend. So bringing women to Yale was in some ways a way to to provide bait to attract men, uh, the top men to Yale. And also the bottom line was involved as well because something else was happening at the same time. You know, at Yale and, and many other U.S. colleges at this time were facing financial difficulty, and there were articles in Time and Newsweek about it. I don't know if Yale realized when it started bringing women in that that would be a great way to make extra money, but it turned out to be the case. And indeed, even when Dartmouth examined Yale's experience with co-education and trying to decide whether Dartmouth should go co-ed. The fact that Yale had made money on co-education because it brought in all those new women's tuitions without increasing costs um, very much was an incentive for Dartmouth to go co-ed as well. 
And you also had the fact that other schools, as they were proceeding to go co-ed, were, you know, taking off some of the top candidates. So Yale presumably could have just been left out in the cold with with none of the top candidates that are in the studio with you at this moment. That's my guest, <laughs> Ann Gardner-Perkins. She's the author of Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant. And now on to some of those girls who were the first in that class. Connie Roster, you transferred from Wheaton College. What about the idea of going to Yale uh, interested you? Well, at first, I was not especially intent on going to Yale. I was perfectly happy at Wheaton, which was, of course, an all girls school at the time. It is no longer, but it was then. But I did know Yale. I knew New Haven. I'm from New Haven. My roots in New Haven are very deep. So I had a a long relationship with uh, New Haven and with Yale. My grandfather and many of my senior relatives were employed at the university from the beginning of the 1900s. So I certainly was familiar with Yale. I would have been and was the first female to attend Yale from my family. And when Yale announced that it was going to go co-ed, I just decided, well, why not try? And that's what I did. I was, in fact, the only woman from Wheaton who got in. Much to the consternation, Mm -hmm. I am told, by the Yale Dean of Undergraduate Studies, much to the consternation of our Dean of Students at Wheaton. Because I was very active on the Wheaton campus. I had many friends. I had made a place for myself. But, you know, when you get into Yale, you don't easily just say no. I'm glad I Mm. applied, and I'm glad I went and took my place among that first cohort. Dahlia Rudofsky, why did you, high school graduate from Newton South High School in Greater Boston, decide you wanted to be a part of this first class? It seemed like it would be interesting and different. I really didn't know what I was getting into. Some of my high school advisors said I would probably be bored at a small college, a small rural college, which is where I had been focusing most of my applications. And when uh, Yale opened up the uh, admissions. I said, well, why not? Uh, I did want to get out of Boston, where I'd lived throughout my junior high and high school years, and um, was happy to get in. I really, I did not know New Haven. My first visit was uh, to be interviewed. It seemed like a nice place, and I thought I'd try it out. Okay. Shirley Daniels, you also transferred from another woman's school, well-known woman's school in Boston, Simmons. Uh, yes, I did. Coming out of Roxbury and High Park High School, um, I was used to co-ed situations at school. And in my senior year of high school, I had read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and that kind of changed my perspective on a lot of things. Uh, when I got to Simmons, I was very active at Simmons and the uh, black student uh, organization that they had there. But I really wanted to study uh, Afro-American studies, which is what we called it back in those days. And a young man from Yale came up on a road trip, came over to Simmons to check out the Simmons women. (laughs) His name was Sam Cooper. He and I were talking, and he says, well, you know, Yale's getting ready to offer up an Afro-American studies program um, at the university. Uh, Why don't you apply? And we're opening it up to women. So I applied. And I just remember writing my heart 
in the application, and I got in. And the rest, they say, is history. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Anne Gardner Perkins, the author of Yale Needs Women, I want you to read this excerpt because I think people really need to go back in time. You really have to go back in time as you're reading this history going, what? Um, and, and understand what was in the minds of the admissions folks as they were going over the applications from the Connies, the Shirleys, the Dahlias to try to figure out who would best be served and how Yale could best be served by whomever they chose. Remember, they're going blind. They've never had any women students, and they're going in with all their biases. And I thought this excerpt really helped concretize what was happening there. So the context here is Yale's decision to admit women was so last minute that the women weren't part of the regular admissions process. They were chosen by just two administrators at Yale, uh, Sam Chauncey and Elga Wasserman. So Chauncey and Wasserman were looking for equality in that first group of women that was not as necessary for the men. After screening for academics, they chose the women for grit. Girls who had four brothers, who had attended a huge high school, who had worked for a year, who had lived for abroad, who had played sports, who had endured a traumatic event, those were the ones that Chauncey and Wasserman wanted. Yale's first women undergraduates may not have yet understood the challenges that awaited them, but Chauncey and Wasserman did. There was no point in taking a timid woman and putting her in this environment, said Chauncey, because it could crush you. So that's my guest, Anne Gardner-Perkins. She's the author of Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So you're all gritty girls. We now know that. <laughs> now, grown, now grown gritty women. But, that's, that's but, right. but, but that was the, the, the characteristic they were looking for um, from your applications. As one of you said, you wrote your heart out. And that's what came through to them, that you could actually take it. Now I want each of you to tell me how tough it was. Dahlia, you said you didn't even know how tough it was while you were in it until you left and really had to process what was happening. Give us a sense of of what it was like to be one of those 575 women spread across the Yale campus. So I first want to say when I read uh, Anne's book and saw that paragraph, I said, aha, that explains a lot of things. We were thrown into a situation that none of us could have anticipated. I'd been in co-ed schools all my life, and yes, I'd lived abroad and been an exchange student for a semester, but nothing prepared me for really the isolation we experienced. And a lot of this became clear. We just had the 50th reunion, and I heard stories from some of my classmates that I had no idea were going on at the time. One friend I thought had just taken a year off. She never came back. She said the atmosphere was so toxic. Now, I experienced feeling isolated from women. I very soon met a man who became my husband, and I became a friend of his friends, who were mostly men. There were a few women. I I had a couple close women friends that I continued to be with over my years at Yale, but I moved off campus after two years. The atmosphere was just so alienating, and it's it's really hard to describe. The place is very male. It's like the women were an afterthought. There was no preparation for what women's needs would be. 
just things like there were no teams for for certain types of athletics. Sports teams. Sports mm-hmm. teams. Mm-hmm. The gym was set up for the men. I remember that we couldn't go into the gym during certain hours because the men liked to swim in the nude, so the women couldn't use the pool for very long hours. Um, Maury's was this uh, restaurant where people would go for job interviews, graduate students. Women were not permitted except during certain hours. So I moved off campus after two years, and I graduated after three. I wanted to get out of there, and only when I got out... I felt like I could breathe again, and I, I wasn't aware of that while I was there. I wasn't aware of being unhappy, except my sister tells me, I have a younger sister, that when she was applying for college, I said, no way should you apply for y- to Yale. It's just not a good place for women. So I was inarticulate at the time about it. Anne's book really helped crystallize the sort of cauldron we were all thrown into without a whole lot of support. That's my guest, Dahlia Rudofsky. She was a freshman in that first class of Yale women. Now, over to you, Connie Roster. You had a different experience, but the isolation was such. I want to pick that up from what Dahlia said, because you didn't even meet Shirley until afterwards. It wasn't that many of you. You would think that you all would all know each other at least. There would be some some places where you would gather at least, you know, tangentially, but, but no. That's right. I would not call it, from my experience anyway, isolation. I think it's true that we did not know each other, and the sad part is that we only in more recent years, maybe over the last 25 of those 50 years, have come to know each other, for which I am eternally grateful, by the way. Me too. I think that there were mistakes made in terms of us being able to know each other. The Yale College campus is, you know, separated into residential colleges, so that for the transfer students, we were um, split up into 12 residential colleges, meaning there were maybe what was it, maybe 10 to 20 of us in a college. Not uh, even that many. Not even maybe that many. Mm -hmm. So that the opportunities to know one another were very slim. And for the African-American students, the women, even slimmer. So that for the class of um, 72, which were the sophomore transfers, and Anne will have this statistic in her head, there were 23 African-Americans. There were seven African-American women in the sophomore class, eight in the junior class, and 25 in the freshman class. Those numbers are unbelievably slim. And so I maybe knew three or four of the African-American students, women students, in total during my time there. Now... We are a collective. Um, We are friends, and it's really wonderful. I think that because I was very active in the arts and in theater and art history, I had an opportunity to span not only the undergraduate scene, but the graduate scene as well. So I had more exposure to students across a, a wider spectrum. So I felt not so lonely I know that many students did. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where I would you know, put myself. 
And surely what was happening at Yale was also happening on other campuses. Uh, Yale, even despite those small numbers, had the largest black class, even though the campus was still 90 percent white at the time. But yeah. at other elite universities in New England were the, quote unquote, largest black classes. So there was a, quite a bit of cross fertilization on those campuses. So for someone like you coming to Yale, you had a particular thing you wanted to do, which was to study Afro-American studies. And uh, you were active in the Black Student Union, you had a kind of home, if you will, you know, not as isolated for those reasons. Yes, that's true. I just thought that it was interesting. The numbers that Anne just quoted to you have to be put in context. Of For each one of those classes, there were a thousand men. The ratio, I believe, was at any one time eight to one or seven to one in terms of uh, what was happening in the individual class. And yes, it was true that we were isolated in the sense of the transfer students were scattered across the 12 residential colleges and the fresh women were put into a single college on the old campus, kind of surrounded by all the other freshmen that were there. But in the Black Student Alliance organization that we had there, recruited students from all classes. So I had a chance to meet black women outside of my residential college who were interested in being a part of the BSAY. Internally, there was a woman by the name of Vera Wells, who was a class of 71, and she kind of took me under her wing, along with Professor Sylvia Arden Boone, who has since passed away, but was an extraordinary professor at Yale in the Afro-American Studies Department. So Mm -hmm. there was a community of which you were quite an active member. So that's a little bit different um, than uh, the experience that Dahlia had. But both you and Dahlia and, and Connie, to a large extent, had all of your consciousness raised uh, mm-hmm. raised while you were there be- for being in that first class because it was a tough road to hold just to succeed and to yes. be there. Yes, absolutely. Um, and Dahlia, I want to go back to you because you mentioned in uh, talking with our producers that Elga Wasserman, who is a big part of Anne's book, was... Uh, someone who was trying to keep a hand in in making the experience better for women on campus. She recognized that a lot of stuff nobody wanted to talk about, including sexual harassment, which by then, as you pointed out, Anne, it did not have at that time had a name. So obviously with that kind of uh, male presence, new young women, that was a lot going on campus. And it was hard. Shirley, you said you had a boyfriend, but Dahlia, you said you knew about other students who had to worry about and fight off sexual harassing situations? There were a couple professors who were known to hit on young women and especially blondes. I was not one of them, but one of my roommates was, and she was just very taken aback by this man's advances. Nothing happened. She got out of the situation with her dignity intact, but it was sort of shocking. Most of the faculty were men. Uh, Most of the administrators were men. I think I had three professors who were women my entire time. All but one was an assistant professor. There were, I think, two tenured women at Yale at the time. One thing that Anne's book really brought clear was how Elga Wasserman herself did not receive the respect and the position that she deserved she was always a special assistant to the president. 
didn't have a provost title, which would have been appropriate. Because she was working with the women, because she was focused on the women students, it should be said, to be clear. Yeah, and, yes. mm-hmm. you know, in my professional life, I'm a discrimination lawyer. I do a lot of work with sex and race discrimination, and I see the same kind of pattern now. But when I read about how Elga Wasserman was treated, it made my blood boil. It really did. She just did not get treated right. And I don't know if she personally felt that way. I'm not speaking for her. I never talked to her about it. But just reading the facts in Anne's book was very disheartening. And I think that attitude toward the woman who was bringing us, you know, who was the impetus for trying to make our lives comfortable and the way she was disrespected reflects the lack of institutional care for taking care of the women they brought into this very difficult situation. Um, And Dahlia, I should say that you were a part of a group called the Sisterhood, which was one of the early women's groups that were feminists, probably born out of the situation you were in. You know, you had a lot to talk about with each other, even though it was a small group of people. So you were for a time a part of the Sisterhood. Shirley had black students at Yale. Uh, Connie had the arts programs. All of you had some way to keep yourself on track and not be overwhelmed by it. And that wasn't true for for all of the women in the group, as Anne has clearly stated. You come away as a reader just how tough it was and how outrageous some of the statements were made toward the women in that first class. So I want to ask each of you, as you look now back on your experience as really path breakers for the women who came behind, many of them do not know this story. Was it worth it? You know, how do you think about it in those terms? I'll start with you, Connie. Yes, it was absolutely worth it. And I would like to say as well that for me, I also traversed several of the areas that we've spoken about. I mean, I had very dear friends in the women's movement. My roommate, Elizabeth Spawn, who's also followed in this book, was very active in the sisterhood. I was also involved with the... BSAY, I have dear friends in that, and I was active in that. And in the the strike, the May Day strike of the Panther trials, I, of course, in the theater. I have very good feelings about my experience in general, but there's nothing in life that's worth it that isn't hard. Everything's hard, but that's the way I was raised, that you just put your head down and you do it, and you try to do it with grace as much as you can. Uh, But I am also very aware that what I gained from my experience as a member of that first cohort of women uh, has stead me very well in all of the things that I've done since leaving Yale in 1972, in publishing as a lawyer for 20-plus years in some of the uh, most difficult situations in the professional world, going back to Yale as an employee, as a volunteer, uh, as a leader. I mean, I think in many ways I am, you know, kind of the quintessential person that Yale wanted when they (laughs) admitted me. They just didn't know that as a woman, I would be that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Shirley Daniels, was it worth it? And let me ask it a different way to you. What do you say to the women coming behind hmm. you? Well, the answer is definitely yes, it was worth it. Uh, and for all the reasons that Connie just articulated, I would just reiterate that good things, things that change you, things that challenge your mind, things that cause you to think, uh, which was all of what was happening during that kind of tumultuous time in the 60s and also what was happening at Yale, I think are worth it. I am who I am today, which is a lot of things. I've just noticed that we're all lawyers. <laughs> uh, and, That's right, which I find know, fascinating, we, by the way. We used, to, we used to joke about that because the classes seem to have trends. You know, the class of 72, everybody seemed to go to law school. Class of 73, everybody went to medical school. We, we, we just didn't, uh, you know, it was just a joke. But uh, just about everybody that I have met from my class went to law school. I'm retired. Um, I'm now a, a Baptist minister. Um, I have a business, a wellness business that helps people change their lives. What was important for me that I would like to say to women and men who were coming up after us, and we got a little taste of that that night when they had us all meet uh, some of the undergraduates at that gala affair, is that Take advantage of the experience that you're having at the university. Work where you're planted. What came out of it for me was I'm just amazed at how many of us went into service industries. Uh, law is a service industry. We help people. People went into nonprofit activities or they had nonprofit activities that they were doing, even if they were working in sort of a commercial, quote, unquote, world. So that's your message to the people coming behind you, that service? Isn't... Yeah, it was a culture that made us strong enough to get out and deal with issues in the world once we got out. Uh, whether or not I made the connection that it went back to Yale, and it came back to Yale, I'm only now just realizing from the 50th and also from the book, Yale Needs Women, just how significant it was that we were there. Dahlia, um, what do you want to say to the women coming behind you, and was it worth it to you? Well, it was worth it. The academic riches, the intellectual stimulation, I was just very privileged to have that. Uh, available to me. I had some wonderful teachers. I can't imagine having a better education, but it came with uh, a lot of, uh, and, and also I must say there was a lot of, um, a lot going on in the world that made its way into Yale, not only the Panthers. The Panther trial made us all sit up and uh, figure out our role in um, justice in our society. The war was going on. The second year, we had our, our dining hall workers went out on strike. A lot of us walked the picket lines and learned yeah. how to cook on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, little stoves, little camping stoves in our, <laughs> in our dorm rooms. Um, so there was, uh, there was much both ivory towerish that was very valuable and um, world exposure that was very valuable. I'm very glad I went to Yale. I met met my life partner there. We're still together. Um, but it was hard. It was very hard, and some of that difficulty shouldn't have been there. Um, I'm very. I was very grateful that Yale finally came around to commemorating those first classes. It was as though 
they finally realized <laughs> that something needed to be said to all of us as a group, that we needed to be brought together. That had never happened. We were never brought together in any of our undergraduate years. There was never an assembly of women, which is sort of remarkable. Um, the other lesson I learned from Yale um, is, is empathy for people who are thrown into a majority culture which is not them, and how hard it is for any group of people who are the first or the small group um, in, a, in a dominant culture that is not them to make their way. Um, and uh, Gardner Perkins, um, finally, from you, um, as you look back, and you're a graduate of Yale, I wanted to just remind people, eight years after this uh, momentous first group of women who attended um, Yale and were first on the campus. Well, what do you want people to take away from this history? Uh, because it, it's, it's a lot of it will leave you open mouth, and it is history. It reads like a novel, but it's it's it really happened. You know, for me, for as a woman who followed these women, I think it ends up being really a story, an inspiring story of courage and resilience and. Um, I I just find myself so inspired by these women who came to a place as teenagers, remember, I mean, most of them were 17, 18, 19 years old, and changed a university by challenging the fact that its faculty was almost all male, by challenging the fact that women weren't part of the curriculum, by challenging the fact that women's numbers were limited, and they pushed Yale to change. And um, I, th I just think that's a remarkable and inspiring story for those of us who seek, continue to seek social justice today. Well, I thank all of you for joining me. What a fantastic uh, job you did, Anne, in telling these stories. And I'm so enriched by having heard all of your stories. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anne Gardner-Perkins is the author of Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and it is available in bookstores and online now. Connie Roster enrolled at Yale as a sophomore transfer student from Wheaton College. Dahlia Rudofsky enrolled as a freshman, a graduate of Newton South High School in Greater Boston. And Shirley Daniels enrolled as a transfer student from Boston Simmons College. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. You probably noticed something a little different about our show today. Under the Radar has new music. The song is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our engineers are Dave Goodman and Bill Piacitelli. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.